Father in heaven, we come into your presence with joy, we come into your presence with singing, and we come into your presence expectant that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, the topic from your word this morning is extremely relevant to our lives. Father, I pray that you would apply the word to our hearts, that we would walk out of here transformed by the power of your word. Lord, we're living in troublous times. We face all kinds of trouble in our own lives. And Father, we need more of you. Would you please pour out your Holy Spirit and speak to our hearts this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Horatio lived in the latter half of the 18th century. Horatio was a successful businessman. He was a lawyer. He was also had quite a bit of real estate. He owned quite a bit of real estate as his business kept getting better and better. He invested in the Chicago area, and he had quite a bit of real estate right on Lake Michigan. This is Horatio. Now, Horatio was blessed with five children. What more could you ask for? Successful business, five children, and he also kept giving back to God. He was somebody who supported the famed evangelist, Dwight L. Moody. He was somebody who gave his funds and he supported him by going to his meetings and being a part of his evangelism. Horatio, by all accounts, was blessed. And then 1970 came. In the year 1970, Horatio's four-year-old child came down with an illness that took his life. It was heartbreaking to Horatio and his wife to think that they had lost their child, but they kept pressing on. Within a year, in 1971, something hit Chicago that you who study history might know, and that was the Great Chicago Fire. Remember, Horatio owned a lot of property along Lake Michigan. As the fire burned, so did Horatio's property. He lost his son, He lost a bunch of property. Horatio's life seemed to be spiraling downward, but he continued to seek God with his whole heart. He continued to follow God with his life. In fact, he continued to support Dwight L. Moody, and he decided that he and his family, they needed a little reprieve from all that they had experienced. They needed a break from all the pressure that had come in around them because of these tragedies. And so they decided to go to Europe to support some meetings that Dwight L. Moody was doing there. And in the process, they would enjoy a little bit of time in Europe. As the plans were coming together for their trip, it got close to leaving, and Horatio realized that he still needed to finish up some things with his business, finishing up all that had taken place with his buildings burning down, and there was still a lot needed to be done in Chicago. So he said to his wife and kids, why don't you go ahead and go, and I'm going to wait behind here in Chicago. He put his wife and four daughters on that ship, and they sailed off across the Atlantic. As they were sailing across the Atlantic, days into their trip, they were near the coast of Newfoundland when a steamship from England intersected their path and crashed into the ship. The ship began to break apart, and Horatio's wife brought the four daughters up onto the ship and began to to talk to them and to say, we need to pray together. We need to pray that God saves us, but most of all, that our hearts are right with Jesus. And she began to pray for her four daughters. Within 12 minutes, that ship had sunk to the bottom of the ocean. As they came to rescue, there were stories of 
two girls that attempted to hang on but weren't able to. The, the mother had been totally separated from her children and immediately the baby had been torn out of her arms. She had been able to just hang on to one piece of the broken ship. A sailor came and found her and rescued her. She went to the Newfoundland and she sent a telegram to Horatio that said, Saved alone. Can you imagine how Horatio felt at this moment? First to lose his son, then to lose his properties in the fire, then to have sent his, his children off doing the will of God to do something great, and to have his four daughters pass away in a shipwreck. How tragic. How terrible. Well, Horatio decided that he needed to get to his wife as fast as possible, and he took the next ship across the Atlantic. And as he was going across the Atlantic, he told the captain, he said, would you let me know when we get to the part of the water where the accident happened just days ago? The captain came and got his attention when they were nearing that spot, and Horatio went out on the deck. And as he looked out at those waters, I believe the Holy Spirit stirred something deep within his soul. Because in that moment, Horatio penned these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He went on to write the rest of that famous hymn, that hymn that many of us know so well. How could a man at this point in his life, when everything had been taken away from him, when he had experienced so much heartache, so much trial, how could he possibly say something like this? How could he say, it is well with my soul. I'm at peace with Jesus. Everything is going to be okay. I believe that this is crucial for us to discover in the book of Revelation chapter 3, to discover where this kind of peace goes, comes from. Would you value to have this kind of peace in your life? To know that no matter what you go through, no matter how life gets, no matter the difficulties you face, that you can say, it is well with my soul. And you can be at peace in Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, we've been looking at this message where Jesus comes to the Laodicean church, that church that represents us in prophetic history, that church that should be active, that should be the most zealous church in all of history, that church, however, that is not hot and not cold, but is lukewarm. They're not active for Jesus. They're doing a little bit here and there. They're going through the motions, but they're lacking the true power of God in their lives. They're not on fire for Jesus. And they don't recognize it. They have no idea that they've got a problem. Jesus says, I wish that you didn't think you were rich and, and nicely clothed. I wish that you recognized that you were naked and blind and poor. If only you could realize, but because you don't, I'm about to come and to vomit you out of my mouth. But thankfully, Jesus gives us the keys to victory over a Laodicean condition. Verse 18 says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. 
Now we've gone through this and we've seen how really this is in Hebrew thought pattern and it's, it's reasoning from effect to cause instead of from cause to effect. It's starting with the first, or it ends with the, the first thing really that Laodicea needs and that's to have their eyes open with the eye salve of the Holy Spirit. The second thing they need is to be clothed with Christ's righteousness. When they recognize they're naked, that they're, all of their righteousness is as filthy rags, that's when they have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need what you have done for me already. You've accomplished a perfect work. I need that. And I need you to live out that perfect work in me. But then Jesus says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Now, this sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you would like to have gold so that you could be rich, have plenty of gold? Gold keeps going up in price in the stock market. What is it that makes gold so valuable? What makes gold so valuable, really? I mean, throughout history, we dig in the Mayan ruins, we dig in ruins around the world, and we come up with gold as being what the kings always put in their palaces. Gold was the currency. Gold is so valuable throughout history. What's so special about gold? On the periodic table, it's AU, right? What, what makes gold so valuable when other metals and other elements aren't so valuable? Well, I didn't know because I'm no chemist. So I read an article about it in the, um, the BBC, and it talked about the value of gold being for various reasons. One is it's not a gas, and a gas would be very difficult to have as a currency. Another thing is it's not radioactive. It would also be bad to have your currency cause you cancer. This would not be a good thing. A lot of the other metals are very reactive. They rust easily. They're not... Other metals are not so easily meltable as gold is. Gold isn't the easiest to melt, but it is possible to melt gold, to easily refine it. The refining process, like it talks about here in Revelation chapter 3, that gold refined in the fire. So we find gold, and it's not all that pretty, but we heat it up, and we're able to refine it. But where does gold come from? Scientists have been wondering this. They've been asking this question. Why do we have gold on our planet? Where does gold come from? Now, our planet actually isn't able to produce gold for itself, but some stars, when they begin to die, they do actually put off different types of metals, and so maybe that's where they came from. And little by little, scientists have been doing research, they've been viewing different stars and the life cycle, and seeing what is it that would create gold. And it's only been in the past few years that they've been discovering that not even a supernova, this huge explosion of a dying star, not even a supernova could create very much gold, enough gold to to get as much gold as we have here on earth. But they've discovered something else. When stars get to that special place that certain stars do of becoming a neutron star, that extremely dense, small star with all that power in it, when those two neutron stars, if they happen to come together, and I believe they actually viewed this in one paper, they, they were viewing two neutron stars that collided, and they saw this brilliant flash of light. And as they studied it, as they've done the calculations, they've realized that this massive explosion in space, this huge explosion that's way beyond anything we can imagine when it comes to nuclear explosions or anything like that, far beyond that, 
this explosion could put out, I believe it was 20 times the moon's mass in gold. That's a lot of gold. They calculated how much that would be worth in today's monetary values, and they said it's about 10 octillion dollars. That's 28 uh, zeros after 10 in dollars. So that, that's quite a bit of money, but you have to remember that that's flying out about the speed of, almost the speed of light going out throughout the universe. And that's how scientists say somehow that gold, as it flew through the universe, it coalesced, and we got some of it on our planet, and that's where we get all this valuable gold from. Now that's how scientists explain it. I believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he may use stuff like that, explosions and massive things in outer space that, that work to create gold, but I know who the ultimate author of gold is. But one thing is very clear from this, and that is that gold does not originate on earth. And in your life, gold is not something that you could ever produce. You don't have what it takes to produce gold. It's kind of challenging knowing that we need gold. Laodicea needs gold. How do we find this gold that is so precious, so rare? How can you and I have gold that is refined in the fire? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 19. He continues after saying that we need to buy this gold that's refined in the fire. He goes on to explain a little bit more. In verse 19, he says, As many as I love. How many does he love? He loves all of us. He sent his son to die for the entire world because he so loved us. Because God loves you. Look at what comes next. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Says, as many as I love, because of my infinite love for you, because I adore you, because I admire you, because I care about you, I'm going to be chastening you, I'm going to be disciplining you, I'm going to be rebuking you. Now, this is a challenging thing. But those of you who have children probably understand this far better than I do because you adore your children, don't you? You love your children, don't you? But do you, if you love a child, will you stop from disciplining them? Will you uh, spare the rod from your child? Or will you discipline them? If you love them, you're going to discipline them. And God says the same thing. In fact, it says it more explicitly in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll go there real fast, actually. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11 says, actually, we'll go back even a little earlier than that. Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll look at verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Whose son does a father not inflict discipline on? Well, there's a few, but they're not pleasant people to be around usually. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be what? Partakers of holiness. God disciplines us for a specific purpose because he wants to form a character in us that is like Jesus. Now, this isn't always pleasant. Look at verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. 
Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this discipline that God brings into our life, it isn't always pleasant at the onset. However, the result is always beautiful. It's the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Peter describes this, and Peter was somebody who would understand this quite well. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, Peter describes the chastening, the discipline of the Lord. Peter understood this. He was somebody who thought that it was going to be easy to follow Jesus, thought that Jesus was going to conquer the Romans, and found out that it was extremely discouraging. It was extremely, a life extremely filled with trials to follow Jesus. So Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. He's talking about salvation, about the future, about all that God's going to do for them. Though now for a little while, praise God for the little while there, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter says you may experience various trials. They may even grieve you. You may go through difficult times. Why? Verse 7 continues, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than what? Gold that perishes, though it is tested in the fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, it's way more valuable for you to go through trials, to go through difficult times, because in you, that's going to produce a genuineness of faith that you could not have if you did not go through that trial. And that faith, that clinging to Jesus in difficult times when it doesn't make sense, when everything's going wrong, and you learn to cling to Jesus in the midst of that trial, that faith, that growth in your strength of clinging to Jesus that is way more precious than gold. Do you see why those whom Jesus loves, He rebukes and chastens. He allows trials to come into their life. He allows experiences because it's through trials that if we submit to the chastening of our precious Father in heaven, if we allow those trials to work in us character, it transforms us to be more and more like Jesus. To the point where we can have an experience like Horatio. We're in the midst of swirling storms, in the midst of the crisis of our life. We can say, it is well with my soul. In the youth instructor, it says something that I believe is crucial. That something that I wish that I had understood at a younger age. January 23, 1902, these words were penned. Our happiness comes not from what is around us. Let that sink in. Your happiness in life doesn't come from what's around us. That's positive or negative. It, doesn't, it means it doesn't come from having wealth. It doesn't come from having everything that you need provided for you. And it also doesn't, isn't taken away from by the difficulties that you face in life. It also means that there's nothing in your life that can rob you of happiness. Our happiness comes not from what is around us, but from what is what? Within us. Not from what we have, but from what we are. Friends, if you get nothing else from the message this morning, walk away with that. So often we go through life and we point our finger at this circumstance or that circumstance, at this person or that person, and we say, that is why we're not happy, or this is why I'm acting this way. But when it comes down to it, 
Nobody is responsible for your happiness but you and your reception of the grace of Jesus Christ in your heart, of that gold of character, that genuineness of faith that is far more precious than gold. How beautiful it is to have character, to have peace in the midst of any storm. And we can trust that God doesn't waste His trials in our life. That God only sends us that which is for our greatest benefit. In each father that loves his child is not going to beat that child, is not going to hurt that child, but in their discipline, they'll do it only as much as it takes to teach that child the way of life that will fill them with joy throughout their lives. Peter continues, if you go to chapter 4, and talks a little bit more about these trials in the beginning of chapter 4. He actually tells us to arm ourselves with the purpose of suffering just like Christ did on the cross. Because he who has suffered in the flesh will cease from sin. Then he goes on in chapter 12 and says this, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. You may be following Jesus. Don't think it strange when everything goes wrong in your life. When you're facing difficulties. When you lose your job. When your wife treats you in a way that makes you go crazy. When your husband mistreats you. When you don't have the finances that you need when your car breaks down, when the refrigerator isn't running, when life throws a curveball at you, don't think it's strange. When you're persecuted by people around you who don't understand your Christian faith, who try to tell you, your spouse tells you not to come to church, or loved ones make fun of you at holiday parties about your faith, don't think it's strange that that happens. But rejoice, verse 13 continues, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see that trials work out something beautiful, something perfect in our lives, and it can only come through Jesus Christ. It's something that God wants to do in our lives, and it's something that we can see in the life of Jesus. Back in Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us, to run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then it goes on to say that Jesus endured the cross. And how did He do it? It was for the joy that was set before Him. That's how Jesus went through that suffering. He was looking to the prize. He was looking to the reward. And He was able to go through that intense trial beyond any trial that you and I will ever face. In the book Help in Daily Living, page 9, it says this, the fact that we are called upon to endure trial shows that Jesus sees in us something precious which He desires to develop. You know when miners are digging in a gold mine and they, they find that gold that's usually mixed with other metals and there's different alloys going on with the gold or sometimes there's just impurities in it and so they have to take it and they have to refine it and they do these different chemical processes and they heat it up and they're able to purify the gold. But it's because that rock is precious. They don't do that when they find other rocks that don't have precious minerals in them. But when they find that precious metal gold in a rock, they're willing to go through this refining process. The same way in your life. When you're going through a trial, you can know that God has allowed that trial to come into your life if you're trusting in Jesus. 
This isn't if we're living a life against God and we're creating our own problems in our life. But when we're following Jesus, when we're seeking to follow him with our whole heart and trials come into our life, difficulties, when it's, when it's testing our patience, we can know that God has allowed that stuff because he sees that you are precious, that he values you. In Isaiah chapter 13 and verse 12, it says that God will make of his people something more precious than the wedge of Ophir, which is King Solomon who pursued all of this wealth. He was the wealthiest king in all the world, in all of history. He would send ships off to Ophir to get gold and bring it back. Here was a guy who was the wealthiest guy and he knew where to go to get gold. That was the most precious gold he could find. But God says, I'm going to make you more precious than that wedge of gold from Ophir. The book Help and Daily Living goes on to describe how God treats us similarly to how one might train a bird to sing. I don't know how many of you have ever had a bird that you've taught to sing a song. Has anybody ever done that before? I've never done it, but my understanding is that if you leave the bird in the cage and it's there with a bright open light, even if you're trying to whistle to it, you're trying to, to teach it to whistle that tune, it's not going to learn the song. But what do you have to do with your bird? You have to drape the cage with a dark blanket until it's all dark in there. You have to put them in a quiet place where they're all alone. And then you whistle that song to them so that that is the only song that the bird hears. And as the bird hears that song in the darkness, in it, what would seem like a terrible trial to a bird, why did my master do this to me? As it hears that song, it's finally able to distinguish the tune that its master wants to teach us. In page 10, it says, Thus God deals with His children. He has a song to teach us. And when we have learned it amid the shadows of affliction, we can sing it ever afterward. That's what God wants to do. He wants to put a song of joy in your heart. And sometimes we don't understand, why is He doing it like this? I wish it was just so much easier. But God knows that the path He's leading you on is the path that will fill you with the most joy throughout eternity. Our scripture reading was really challenging to me as I read it this week. Kept pondering James chapter 1. Thank you, Steve, for sharing that story of how you're going through the midst of a trial and, and seeing how you can experience joy in the midst of a trial. This takes it to a whole new level. While chastening is not pleasant, the writer of Hebrews tells us, while discipline is sometimes grievous, Peter says, James says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Let that sink in. Count it all joy. That means when the car breaks down. That means when you're in a situation where people are persecuting you because of following Jesus. That means when your employer tries to make you work on the Sabbath. When any of these things take place in your life, James says, count it all joy, rejoice, be glad in that time. Why? James, why would you say this? I know you're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but, but why should I be joyful? Why should I be happy about this trial? I know that I could be happy about the future, but he says, count it all joy, that very trial that's coming to you. 
Verse 3 continues, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Knowing that in the very midst of that trial, as you're there and the difficulties are surrounding you, and as you try to look forward into the future and you don't see a way through, that that very moment will lead you to cling to Jesus. It will lead to strengthening of your patience. It will lead to a genuineness of faith that is more precious than gold. In that very moment, you can rejoice because you are learning to trust Jesus more. I want to live like this. I have to admit that that's not always my first thought when a trial happens. But I want it to be. When I'm going through a difficult time that I can think in this moment, this is an opportunity to thank Jesus for what I'm going through. This is what we see pictured in the disciples' life. Those who had seen Jesus go to the cross. They would seen Him endure the cross because of the joy that was set before Him. The disciples, when they were beaten, what did they do? They would go on their way rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Actually, go with me to Acts chapter 16, where we see one of the most beautiful stories of suffering and joy in the midst of trial. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas go into the the town of Philippi, and as they're going through the town of Philippi, verse 16 begins to talk about how this this, uh, demon-possessed girl began following them through town, chanting out stuff as, as she would follow them. Eventually, they get so fed up with her that they finally turn and they cast the demon out of her. Then verse 19, we pick up the story. Here they're doing something good for the city of Philippi. They're casting out demons. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone because this demon had been cast out of this girl, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities and they brought them to the magistrates and they said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Here they are trying to bring freedom, trying to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the response that they're getting. But it gets worse. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes. They're now naked standing in Philippi with an angry mob around them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. This is a brutal tactic that would take place. They would beat them until their backs would be bloodied. Verse 23, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now prison today is way different from prison back then. A dungeon back then was not a pleasant place to be. A dungeon back then didn't have toilet facilities for them. A dungeon back then was dark. It was filthy. It was a place of disease. It was a place that nobody wanted to go because you didn't know if you'd come out alive. Here he is in prison. Here Paul and Silas are placed in prison. Their backs are bleeding. You can imagine just... You wouldn't want to be in a place like that when you're bleeding, when you're exposed. They're in pain. They're suffering. Added to that, for added security, they put them in stocks, which there's different theories about exactly what that means, but it was probably something that left their bloodied backs in an awkward position against the ground with their feet up and their hands up. They were in excruciating pain there 
in this prison. And what happens? You know the story. It continues on in verse 25. But at midnight, it's the middle of the night, they can't sleep. What do you do when you can't sleep at night? What's the first thought that comes to my mind when I, when I wake up at a time that I wish I wasn't awake? But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It's the middle of the night. They're in excruciating pain. They're in a filthy, dark prison. And what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing praises to God. They are counting all their trials as pure joy. Friends, I don't think it's just because Paul and Silas were some superhumans. But I believe that as they had fixed their eyes on Jesus, as they had gone through discipline in the past, something had begun to take place in their hearts that when that moment came, when everything else was stripped away, all that was left is the solid gold of their character. And that was what shone out in that moment. You know, so often we feel like when we go through a hard day at work or we're, we've had a bad hair day or whatever it is, we have an excuse to lash out at the people around us and we blame that experience in our life. But friends, in that moment when you're the most frazzled, when you're the most able to be stirred up, I would assert to you that that is who we truly are. That, in that moment, that moment when we're the most ready to blow up at our friend, at our, at our child, at our whatever it is, that very moment when we're ready to give up on our faith, that is the moment when our heart is most exposed. And it's in that moment that Jesus wants to expose a repentant heart for us to come to Him and allow Him to fill us with His Holy Spirit and that gold of character, of love and joy and peace, so that we too can be like Paul and Silas, that we can be in the midst of that trial and we can be singing and praising God all the while the prisoners are listening, astounded by the faith that we have in that moment. In that moment, we can cry out, it is well with my soul. This is the reality that we find in Paul's life. He later describes how he's able to live like this. He's writing to the Philippians. Go with me to the book of Philippians. Paul is writing later to the Philippians where this was where the jail experience happened. He's writing in chains, we learn at the beginning of the book. But then he tells them not to feel sorry for him that he's in chains, that it's actually working for the furtherance of the gospel because his Guards are actually being converted. But then in chapter 4, in verse 11, it says this. This is Paul writing in chains. Paul, who's a prisoner, he's not able to preach like he wants to. There he is, and he says this. Not that I speak in regard to need. Really, Paul? You're in prison. You don't have any needs right now? For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. It says, I've learned what it takes to be content at all times. Do you want to learn that? I want to know that for my life. I want to not be dependent upon the circumstances around me. I don't want chains to, to keep me from being happy. I don't want a broken down car to keep me from being happy. I don't want troubles at work to keep me from being happy. I want to be content in everything. 
So Paul, what is it? What is it that enables you to to have this gift of contentedness in any situation? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Remember, those whom Christ loves, he rebukes and he chastens. Then when we're zealous and we repent, verse I believe it's 20, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, then I'll come into him and dine with him. This experience, this character of gold, ultimately comes from having a heart that is filled with the presence of Jesus. From having Jesus in our heart, because in his presence is fullness of joy. And you can go through any situation in your life with confidence and contentedness when you have Jesus dwelling in your heart. You too can sing in prison. You too can sing, it is well with my soul when all of your kids have passed away and all of your property has been burned and all the world around you is crashing down. Jesus said this in John 16, 33. He said, I have said these things that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Our hope is in Jesus. Our gold is in Jesus. Jesus and Jesus only. And look at what happened to those prisoners in that prison there in Philippi back in Acts chapter 16 after they're singing suddenly in verse 26 there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken immediately all the doors were opened everyone's chains were loosened God responds when we praise him in the midst of the trial when we count it all joy when we're going through difficult times when we choose to cling to Jesus that genuineness of faith is precious to Jesus and he shows up with power in our situation But Paul, uh, in in verse 27, And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he brought them out. Uh, Verse 29, Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Do you realize how astounding it is that all the prisoners were still there? Something had happened in the heart of those prisoners as they watched Paul and Silas going through this terrible affliction. And they saw in them something that they didn't have. They saw in them something that they wanted because here they were and they were miserable in prison. They were experiencing what prison should make us feel like, right? But they see Paul and Silas praying and praising God and they say, we want what you have. They're listening to them, it says earlier in the chapter. And because of that influence of Paul and Silas, when the prison doors are burst open, they don't run and hide. But they stay right there. They just want to be close to Paul and Silas because they realize that they have something more precious than gold. Friends, God wants for you to buy from Him gold refined in the fire. He wants for us to be able to sing In the midst of trial, he wants us to learn that song that is above all songs, that song of praise to Jesus. In Help in Daily Living, it says this, In the future life, the mysteries that have here annoyed and disappointed us will be made plain. We shall see that our seemingly unanswered prayers, disappointed hopes, have been among our greatest blessings. In the darkest days when appearances seem most forbidding, have faith in God. He is working out His will. And as you have that faith, it becomes more precious than gold. Doing all things well in behalf of his people, the strength of those who love and serve him will be renewed day by day. Not only your own faith, though, but the faith of all the people around you will be impacted 
through the power of your praising in the midst of trial. You're counting it all joy. Your happiness, your contentedness in the difficult times in life. I know this from Paul and Silas' story, but I also know it from the story of Dimitri. It's told in the book, The Insanity of God, a book by Nick Ripkin, where he goes talking about different parts of the world that have endured persecution. Dimitri lived in the country of Russia. He lived in it during the time when the Soviet Union uh, imposed their religious persecution. They only had the state churches that could be open. Dimitri had grown up in a household of faith before communism had taken over. He had experienced some uh, Bible teaching as a child. And as he got married and he had a family and the closest church was a, a three a three-day walk away, he began to wish that his own children could have the experiences that he had had as a child. So he eventually found a, a Bible and he began to, I don't know if it was on the black market, but he eventually got this Bible and he began to read day by day to his children from that Bible. As he read to his children day by day, the children were so enthralled by it but that they began to say, could you also teach us to sing? Could you teach us to sing those songs that you used to sing as a child that we used to sing when we could go to church? So they began to have this worship service together as a family day by day. As they'd worship together, the neighbors began to notice and pretty soon some neighbors were joining in week by week and he would say to them, no, you don't, don't come to our house. I'm not a pastor. I'm not trained in this. But they said, we want what your family has. It grew to 25, and by the time it was to 25, the authorities took notice, and they came to Dimitri's house, and they said, you have to stop this. You're starting a church, and that is not allowed. He said, that's preposterous. I, I'm not starting a church. I'm not even a pastor. How could you say I'm starting a church? They said, just stop, or you're going to be sorry. He went on day by day, holding the worship services each evening. They would read the Bible, they would talk about the Bible, and they would sing praises to Jesus. The group grew to 50, and again, the authorities came and began to, to be more insistent that he stop. It grew to 75, and that day they burst in while the midst of the service was going on, and they began to beat Dimitri in front of everybody there. And they said, if you do not stop, something worse will happen. As he, the guard who slapped him around walked out of the room, an old lady stood up in the middle of the congregation, and she said, sir... You are messing with God and something worse is going to happen to you. Within a week, that man had passed away. But within a week, they held another service at the house. And that time, the whole town had heard about it. There was about 150 people that gathered at his house and the authorities had had enough. They came and they grabbed Dimitri away from his wife and two sons and they dragged him off to prison. In prison, he was treated mercilessly. He was beat. Prisons in Russia are also not such a pretty thing. He was mistreated. But in his time in prison, he said that he clung to two practices in his spiritual life. That was, first of all, that every single morning when he woke up, as the sun was rising, he would face the east and he would begin to sing a praise song to Jesus. He would sing with all of his heart to Jesus in the midst of that dirty prison cell with a toilet right next to him in the midst of all that filth. The prisoners around him, there were about 1,500 prisons and the prisoners in their own cells began to throw stuff at him and yell at him and mock him and tell him, stop singing. We don't want to wake up yet. Eventually, they were even throwing human feces at him as he would wake up morning by morning, 
day after day, month after month, year after year, and continue to sing with all of his heart in prison to Jesus. Then he would do something else. In the day, as he was around the yard, he would look wherever he could, and if he found a scrap of paper, he would rush back to his room, and with a little stub of pencil that he had, he would begin to write down every Bible verse he could think of, and every hymn he could think of, and as he traced down those words about Jesus, he would fill every inch and square of that paper, he would take that paper, and he would put it on the corner of the post in his room as high as he could. The guards didn't like this. Whenever they found a piece of paper posted in the corner of his cell, they would grab it, tear it up, and they would grab Dimitri and begin to beat him violently. That didn't stop him. He just kept doing it day by day, month by month, year by year. The guards were so frustrated with him that one day they came, and as they were physically abusing him, they began to tell him, you know what? We killed your wife. And we took your children, and now they're prisoners of the state. And before long, they're not going to believe in God either. That finally broke Dimitri. In that moment, he said, I don't understand why Jesus has let this happen to me. It got a little bit deeper in his heart. And in that moment, he broke down. He said, okay, I'll sign the confession. I have to know where my kids are. They said, we're going to prepare it for you, and we'll bring it in the morning. Well, that night, Dimitri was sitting on his bed, heartbroken, couldn't believe that he was ready to deny Jesus. But he knew he just had to find his children. But as he slept that night, God gave him a dream. And in that dream, he saw his wife and children there in the living room praying for him in prison. And when he woke up, he was filled with renewed courage to cling to Jesus in the midst of his trial to continue singing to Jesus in the midst of his trial. When the soldiers came to have him sign the confession, he said, I'm not signing it. He said, why not? He said, because I know that you're lying. God showed me that my family is alive. They left in disgust, and Dimitri went on singing by morning by morning and writing his Bible verses until one day, as he described it, he said, I was walking through the prison yard And there I found the biggest piece of paper I had found in all my time in prison. And God had laid a pencil right next to it. And he began to, back in his room, to write down every memory verse he could think of and every hymn he could think of until he had the the whole page front and back filled with all the words of Jesus that he could remember. He took that. He said, Jesus, thank you for what you've done. And he placed it in the corner of his cell. The guards came. They were angry. They grabbed him from the cell. They said, that's it. You've done it. We're sick of your tricks. They took him out of the cell. And as they were dragging him through the midst of the other cells, through the prison, out of the prison, suddenly all 1,500 prisoners stood up. They faced toward the east. They began to sing a song of praise for Jesus. It's in the Russian language, so I don't know what it was. But I can only imagine that it might have been something like, it is well, it is well with my soul. The prison guards were shocked. And as they stopped while the prisoners were singing, Dimitri stood up straight and they said, who are you anyway? 
And he said, I am a son of Jesus Christ. Friends, when you go through trials, know that Jesus is hanging on to you. You are a child of the King, and he doesn't waste those trials in your life. They're only there to fill you with that precious gold of character so that you too can say, it is well with my soul in the midst of the most difficult circumstances and so that the people around you can be influenced by seeing your joy. And they too can learn to sing in the most difficult of times. If you're able, I want to invite you to kneel with me as we pray. Oh, Father, we long for it to be fully well with our souls. Father, I know that in this place, there are many who are going through difficult times. Things that maybe they've not even shared with anyone. I've heard some of the struggles. I know some of the difficulties, but I know there are even deeper struggles that we're facing. And Father, in the midst of it, We're asking that you would give us that faith, that genuine faith that is more precious than gold. That you would help us to cling to Jesus. You'd help us to cry out in the midst of the storm that it is well with our souls. Father, we want to cast all our burdens at your feet this morning and plead with you to help us to buy from you gold refined in the fire, that character which will make us happy in any and every circumstance. Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on my friends this morning. Fill them with the joy of your salvation that will see them through any and every difficulty that they face this week, this month, this year, however long it takes until we see that blessed hope of Jesus coming to take us to a world where there will never be any more pain and never any more sorrow. Father, bless my friends as they go out in this hope. Lord, may this not just be a moment where our hearts are stirred, but may we determine that when things are difficult, when we don't even feel like it, that we will continue to count it all joy and to praise you in the midst of the difficulties. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.